morning we come to a passage in Luke's gospel um, that I think is going to, I know over the course of the last several weeks for me, it's kind of been wrecking my own heart and conscience over the coals. Uh, and so my hope this morning is that I'll be able to communicate uh, that with clarity, uh, but also with compassion. So as, would you read with me in Luke's gospel, beginning in chapter, in chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Jesus has been traveling around uh, teaching and preaching and ministering, and he's, he's begun to become, uh, his notoriety has begun to spread, and his authority and popularity has begun to spread. And so verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who has made me a judge or orbit, arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We've looked over the course of the last several weeks at these choices that we make to move toward the fullness of gospel community. Because it's possible to be a part of a church, even be a member of a church, even serve in a church and not really feel fully connected there. Um, and one of the reasons that perhaps we may not feel fully connected there is because our hearts naturally are bent toward choosing greed over generosity. But if we're going to experience the fullness of gospel community, we've got to learn to make this choice of generosity over greed. Of generosity over greed. You know, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, down, further down in verse 34, he makes this statement. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So perhaps for some of us, one of the reasons we may not feel necessarily fully connected and fully uh, interwoven here in this body of people is because we're not fully invested. We're not fully invested. And as I've read this text over the course of the last several weeks, God's just really been penetrating and pushing and prodding and, like I said before, wrecking my own heart and conscience over the coals. Because one of the realizations that comes, has come to the forefront of my mind and my heart over the last several weeks is this, is that, that North Texas Christianity is not New Testament Christianity in relationship to this perspective. It is not. You know, we moved here, I moved here 12 years ago, and I grew up in South Louisiana in a uh, two-bedroom house with one bathroom and a brother and a mother and a father. Um, it's about a thousand square foot. We shared, my brother and I shared a bunk bed together in a room um, for many, many, many years of our lives. And when we moved here, my wife and I moved here, it was a a subculture shock for us coming into North Texas with massive homes, all kinds of space, many times for just two people. But there was these massive, massive homes that we were invited into. And so at first it was a culture shock, but over the last 12 years for us, we've kind of been like the frog in the pot of water that as the temperature slowly gets turned up, the frog just kind of adjusts and eventually he winds up discovering he's boiling to death. And these last couple of weeks, God has really pressed that on my own heart, my own life, my own family, and our own resources, that we have made choices in the last 12 years to choose greed over generosity. And my hunch is that many of us in the room have as well, because North Texas Christianity is not New Testament Christianity in relationship to our leveraging and utilization of resources. See, North Texas Christianity tends to be very comfortable, 
very cultural and very complacent, while New Testament Christianity is sacrificial. It's happily and joyfully generous with its goods, and it's never yielding. It never just settles. It never just grows complacent. In addition, North Texas Christianity tends toward the building of bigger and bigger and bigger barns in order to store all our goods, while New Testament Christianity moves towards building bigger and bigger and bigger barns in heaven, not on earth. Laying up treasure in heaven, not here. North Texas Christianity tends toward accumulation, while New Testament Christianity tends toward simplicity. Wanting to downsize and give away rather than upsize and acquire. And whenever we come to a text like this where Jesus makes this, these kinds of statements and he tells these kinds of stories, it really runs against the grain of the cultural norms in our context. And so one of the things that does for us is it puts us on, def- on our, our defenses go up very quickly, don't they? Whenever someone starts talking about money or finance or possessions or goods, all of a sudden these walls, right? It's like there's an automated trigger in our hearts that these walls begin to go up and and they're very hard to penetrate. But my hope and my prayer is this. I've been praying all week and I told our elders this Wednesday morning as I was praying through what to share this weekend out of this text is that my hope is that we would, there would be some in this room this morning who would go away filled with joy as God sets them free from storing up treasures here on earth. And they would begin to store up treasures in heaven. That you would go away filled with joy. But my hope is that either you would go away filled with joy or with sadness. Because even the rich young ruler, based on Jesus' words, when Jesus says, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me, Jesus Jesus is standing before the man. Jesus is calling the man to that. And he looks him in the face square and he turns aside. And the text tells us he goes away sad. So my hope and my prayer is that we would either go away filled with joy or sadness, but not indifference. And so my prayer is that as we open the word together, we open the word together that either that God would penetrate and that it would either be create joy or it would create grief and sadness, but we wouldn't go away saying, that's where y'all want to go eat for lunch. We'd either there'd be changes in our lives on account of what Jesus says to his people through his word. In Luke chapter 12, there's several things that come to mind when I think about choosing generosity over greed. And the first one is this is that you and I, in order to make that kind of choice, we must learn to guard ourselves against greed. I want you to look at what Jesus says in verse 15. And the crowd gathers around him. He's no longer just responding to one man's individual question, but he turns to them, the text says, and he makes this statement. He turns to the crowd that's surrounding him and pressing in on him, and he says, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness and greed. Jesus says you need to set defenses and mechanisms in your heart to guard against covetousness and to guard against greed. Now, what is covetousness or what is greed? Some of your translations translate it covetousness. Some of it translate it greed. Covetousness or greed essentially is this. It's wanting more than what we need and God has given. It's wanting more than what we need and God has given. Now listen, some of you go, man, that is not very helpful at all because there's no chart. Listen, I was talking to some guys about this earlier this week. There's no chart. There's no graph. There's no baseline benchmark of what that is. 
And I think there's, there's a reason for that because in every culture, in every context, it might be a little bit different. But it's wanting more than what we need and more than what God has given. And you and I have to set mechanisms and defenses in our heart to guard ourselves against coveting, to guard ourselves against greed. Jesus says, Jesus says, take care and guard yourselves against all covetousness. Now, why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus respond with that kind of admonition, that kind of command, that kind of warning? And I think there's at least three reasons why he would respond that way to this man's question about an inheritance that needs to be divided up between two brothers. The first reason is this, is because covetousness or greed, I think, is the natural bent of every human heart as a result of the fall. It's the natural bent of all of our hearts. Listen, I see this at a very, I've seen this at a very early age with my kids, right? From the earliest moments that they could express themselves through vocalization of words, they'd be watching a television show, some cartoon on TV, and a commercial would come on advertising whatever the latest toy is that had just been released, and the very first words out of their mouth is what? I want that. Can I have that for my birthday? Can I have that for Christmas? Can I have that just because I'm a great kid and God has blessed you with me and so you should just give that to me. I want that, right? The very first words out of their mouth. I never trained them to say those things. It's just what's, what comes out of the heart. See, the natural bent of all of our hearts and unfortunately, unfortunately, that doesn't just go away on its own. We don't just grow out of that. You can look in my garage and tell that. You can probably look in your garage and tell that. We don't just outgrow that. So we have to guard ourselves against it because it's the natural bent and inclination of every one of our hearts as a result of the fall. In addition, we have to guard against covetousness and greed because it's the root of all kinds of other sin. It's the root of all kinds of sin. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop in the late 1800s, said this. He said, It would be vain to decide positively which is the most common sin in the world. It would be safe to say that there is none at any rate to which the heart is more prone than covetousness. It was this sin which helped to cast down the angels who fell. They were not content with their first estate. They coveted something better. It was this sin which helped to drive Adam and Eve out of paradise and bring death into the world. Our first parents were not satisfied with the things which God gave them in Eden. They coveted, and so they fell. It is a sin which ever since the fall has been productive cause of the misery and unhappiness upon the earth. Wars, quarrels, strifes, divisions, envying, disputes, jealousies, hatreds of all sorts, both public and private, may nearly all be traced up to this fountainhead. You think about nearly every other sin. That's why you get to the end of the Ten Commandments. And Luther, as he read through the Ten Commandments in a shorter catechism, he's going, man, I've got this nailed. And then he gets to the tenth one. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or thy neighbor's donkey or thy neighbor's house or thy neighbor's truck or thy neighbor's whatever your neighbor has on the other side of the fence. And he goes, that wrecked me. That wrecked me. And Ralph says it's the, it's the root of all other kinds of sin. You think about adultery. What is the root of that sin? It's coveting something that you do not need and God has not given. All kinds of sin are traced back up to this fountainhead of coveting. And so we have to guard ourselves against it. 
It's the natural bent of all of our hearts. It's the fountain of all kinds of sin. But in addition, thirdly, we have to guard ourselves against covetousness and greed because it's the root of all kinds of heresy and false teaching in the church. All kinds of heresy and false teaching. When you think about the prosperity gospel that has become incredibly popular and prevalent in our day and time, what lies at the heart of that is this promise that pastors and teachers would make to people to satisfy the greed and covetousness that exists in their hearts. That if you will come to Jesus, he will give you all this stuff. He will give you all kinds of money, and you won't be sick anymore. And we hear those kinds of pastors and teachers on television. They might release books into the bookstores. But even our own local context is not immune from people who are operating under that kind of heretical teaching. There's a church in our local context on their website. Their doctrinal statement reads as follows. One of the positions of their doctrinal statement reads as follows. We believe in the tithe, the first 10% of our income that belongs to the Lord. Offerings that are given willingly and alms that are to be given to the poor. We believe prosperity is the will of God for every believer and always to be associated with God's purpose for our lives. And then they cite two proof texts in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to show you these texts that they're building this doctrinal statement on. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 17 and 18 reads as follows. In Deuteronomy, let me give you a little background. Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell sermon to God's people before his death and before they cross over into the land of promise that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So before they go into the land, Moses stands up to preach, and he preaches a long time in Deuteronomy, right? And this is a part of his sermon, and he's trying to call God's people to remember God whenever they come into the land, and they are now flourishing, and God has blessed them in the land. And he says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have given me, gotten me this wealth. And then in verse 18, it says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Now, a couple of things about this text that you need to know. First of all, this is not a promise to an individual. God is not talking to an individual here. He's talking to a nation of people that he has chosen to bless with a land. He's not talking to individual Israelites or individual Christians saying, here's what God is always in every instance going to do but rather he's talking to a people. Second of all, this is not a promise of prosperity, but this is a call to remember God's provision. He's saying when you come into the land and you settle into cities and you begin to build homes and you begin to plant fields and you begin to harvest those fields and there is all kinds of goods and grain for you, do not forget it is God who gave you the strength to come into this land. It is God who has given you the strength to plant those fields. It is God who has given you the strength to acquire that wealth. He's not promising prosperity. He's calling them to remember God's provision. The second text they try and hinge this on is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, where Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about a need that exists in the church in Jerusalem. And he's calling the church in Corinth to open up their pocketbooks and let money flow toward the church in Jerusalem to help address that need. And in 2 Corinthians 8, 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Verse 9, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... 
Yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, a couple of things about this text. Let's kind of pull this apart just a little bit together this morning. First, Paul is not referring to material possessions and prosperity, but to the riches of a reconciled relationship with God, regardless of how much money or wealth or property you have. He's saying the riches that you've received is not necessarily a bank account with 10 zeros behind the one, but rather the richness of being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And that Jesus, who owned everything in heaven, gave it all up to come, and he made him see impoverished himself in order that you might have a relationship with God. Second, he says, this is not a, look at this, it's not a promise of prosperity, but a call to generosity. He didn't say God's going to fill your barns with all kinds of great stuff. But he's saying, listen, take what you have and leverage it for the sake of those who are in need. The church in Jerusalem is in great need. Open your pocketbooks and let money and resources flow to address that need. He's not promising prosperity. He's calling for generosity on the basis of God's generosity towards them in Jesus Christ. And so it doesn't mean that Jesus left heaven, had no place to lay his head, was stripped of his clothes, was beaten, pierced, bled, and died so that we could afford a bigger house, a newer car, or more stylish clothes. It's not what he's saying. Rather, Jesus did all this in order to move you and I from moral and spiritual bankruptcy to grant you the riches of a relationship with God, even in material poverty and an eternal home in heaven. Jesus didn't die to make us rich in terms of worldly goods, but to make us righteous in God's eyes. Jesus emptied himself so that we could be full. Jesus humbled himself to raise us up to God. Jesus didn't impoverish himself at the cross so we could build bigger barns on earth, but so that we could be set free from the love of money and idolatry and use the wealth God blesses us with for his glory and the good of others. In fact, a hip-hop artist, Lecrae, has written a song called Change. And in that song, Change, he's talking about all kinds of um, methods and manners that people try and leverage in order to experience the kind of change they're looking for in life. In one verse, he says, he, says, he writes these words and sings these words. Now, if you're an English teacher, you've got to excuse his grammar and punctuation here, okay? Um, that's not what he's aiming at, all right? Listen to what he says. He says, as people are looking for change, he says, now you got Oprah on thinking maybe she can help you out your hopeless zone. She's going to change you. Even tried the church. The pastor gave you a bunch of rules. They ain't seem to work. You don't change. You tried another one, though. They got you feeling good inside and got you running for Mo and Mo, right? <laughs> not Larry, Mo, and Curly, but more stuff. But it's all about you, not God, not truth. Just because you wear the suit doesn't mean you've been changed. Is Christ just a means to money? Plus health, you the master, he's the dummy? No, no, no. See, the prosperity gospel sees God as a means to an end, not as the end in and of himself. You want to use God to get what we really love and what we really want as opposed to worshiping God with all that he has given. We have to guard ourselves against greed. We have to guard ourselves against covetousness because it's the natural bent of each of our hearts. It's the root of all kinds of sin, and it's the root of all kinds of false teaching. But how do we do that? How do we guard ourselves against greed? 
way that you and I need to have to, the way we guard ourselves against covetousness and greed is by establishing governors in our lives through faithful giving. Got to establish governors in your life. I remember as a child, my parents purchased a, a used go kart for us. Um, and we rode around the backyard in this go-kart. Now, that little go-kart engine had a governor on it, right? And that governor was in order to keep us from getting out of control and going too fast at a young age when we didn't know how to handle the wheel of that little go-kart. And so the governor restricted the top speed of that engine so we wouldn't get out of control. And the reality for you and I is that if we're going to guard ourselves against greed and all kinds of covetousness, is that we've got to begin to place in, put in place governors in our lives, Governors in our lives that are going to keep us from going out of control and pursuing material possessions. I want you to notice what Jesus says in, in the parable that he tells. He tells about this man, right? In verses 17 and 18, he says the problem for the man is that he was rich already to begin with. Okay? He was rich already to begin with, yet he has an exponential yield in his harvest. An exponential yield. There's all kinds of stuff that's coming in. So what does he do? He doesn't say, well, what can I give away? What can I, what can I uh, divest myself of? But rather, what can I keep? I can't keep it all because I don't have a big enough barn. So I've got to tear down the small barn that I have, build a bigger barn, barn so I can keep collecting and I can keep storing up for myself. See, the man's issue was not that he was rich. In fact, the Bible never says a single word about how much you make. But the Bible has a lot to say about how much you keep. There's a lot to say about how much you keep. We've got to put governors in place to keep ourselves from acquiring and accumulating and believing that our life consists in the abundance of our possessions. Isn't that what Jesus says in verse 15? If you go back, he says, you've got to guard yourselves against all covetousness because your life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. What does he mean by that? In other words, your life doesn't consist in the, of, of you believing that if you could just have one more garage stall, you'd be sufficient. You'd be, you'd be set, right? Or if I could have just one more vehicle or a nicer vehicle or a shinier vehicle, your life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions, he says. How do you know if that's, you've fallen victim to that lie? There's several ways to know that you've fallen victim to that lie. First of all, you try and make as much money as possible in order to keep as much as possible as opposed to giving as much as possible. I said before, G Jesus never says any, a single word about the man being rich. The issue is not about how much you make. It's about how much we keep. In addition... If you find your significant satisfaction or security in your possessions, your life probably consists in the abundance of what you have. If you believe that you're more significant than the next person, or that you find your sense of self-worth in the fact that you've got a garage full of stuff or three storage units rented down the street filled with all kinds of things that you use once every five years. I know how that goes, right? Is your significance found in that? Your satisfaction found in that? Your security found in that? Now listen, you don't have to have a lot of stuff to fall prey to this particular perspective. You just have to believe that if you just had this, whether you have it now or not, if you just had X or if you just had Y, if you just had Z, then life would be so much more fulfilling. Life would be so much more meaningful. Life would have so much more joy. 
Listen, I get that. I do. I feel that every time I drive by Best Buy. I do. Listen, I feel it every time I go to the lake and I take this old, beat-up, scarred, nasty-looking boat and I put it into the water that my grandfather passed down through three generations. And next to me at the boat launch is a guy launching a brand-new 22-foot bass cat with a 300-horsepower engine. The gel coat is sparkling in the sun, and he's got like $8,000 worth of electronics on the thing where he can see fish swimming down below the water. Right? I get it. I feel that pull in my own heart. And if you believe that significant security or satisfaction is going to come from having prettier or nicer or shinier or newer things, your life may consist in the abundance of your possessions. Or if you believe that affluence automatically translates to influence, that just because I have a lot means that my word should be valued more in a particular context. And your life probably consists in the abundance of your possessions. What we need are governors to guard against accumulation, to guard against believing that my life consists in the abundance of what I own or possess. Now, how do we establish those governors? Let me give you a couple of um, suggestions this morning as we kind of think through guarding ourselves against greed. First of all, to establish governors, um, as your earning potential increases, increase the potential of your giving. In other words, set a threshold and say, you know what? I... My family can live on this. And anything that comes in above this, we're not just going to say, oh, well, now we can sell this house and buy a bigger one. Or no, now we can trade in this vehicle that's running perfectly fine and buy a newer one. right? As opposed to increasing your standard of living as your income potential rises, rather increase the standard of giving, how much is going out, not how much more you're keeping. So set a threshold every year. And if you get a raise or a merit bonus or a, a, a cost of living increase, say, my family was living just fine last year on $70,000 or on $60,000 or on $80,000. And now we're making $100,000 as a family or we're making $120,000 as a family. Or we went from $30,000 or $40,000 to $60,000. We were living just fine before. Why not draw a line in the sand and say, I'm going to guard against all covetousness by saying whatever comes in above where we're able to live now is going to go out. It's going to go out. In addition, resist the temptation to build a bigger house, buy more land, or rent another storage unit by giving things away. So many of us look around and we go, I've got the house is too full. We need to build a bigger house. We need to rent more storage units. Instead of doing that, why don't you give some of that stuff away to people who might, who might use it or sell it and then give the proceeds to an orphanage or give it to a family that's adopting to help support that cause. So as opposed to building more bigger barns and renting more facilities, give away, give away. Choose generosity. In addition, thirdly, if your salary includes a bonus structure, and some of you do, you have a base salary, and then on top of that, you have commission. On top of that, you have bonuses that might come in. You may say, my base salary is only X amount of dollars. My family couldn't live on X amount of dollars in this culture, but maybe they could live on X amount of dollars, your base salary, plus 50% of your bonuses. We'll take the other 50% of your bonuses and channel them out toward others. 
So you got to establish governors. And maybe on a yearly basis, a yearly basis, you increase the amount and you increase the percentage you're giving away as opposed to the percentage that you're keeping. See, some of us said, I'm going to give at this level. And then as our income rose, we continue to give at that level and keep at a higher level. And Jesus warns us against that. You've got to have established governors by faithful giving. Now, where should you give? We suggest three places to give. First of all, giving to ministry. First, giving to ministry. Ministry of the local church. You know, and we'd say, well, where do I start? Well, typically in the Old Testament, the standard was 10% of a tithe that was brought into the temple to support the work of the temple ministry that was going on there in the Old Testament. And it's hard for me to imagine those of us on this side of the cross who have seen the riches of God demonstrated through the person and work of Jesus Christ to want to try and create excuses of giving it any less than that standard. So you're giving to the local church faithfully, sacrificially, consistently. So every time there's a paycheck that's coming in, money is going out to support the ministries of the local church. You know, just recently as we rebuilt our website, you know, Keith, Keith Green, his company, did a phenomenal job rebuilding the website. And we now have an access to online giving portal. And you can set up recurring gifts that would take place every pay period for you. And money would automatically be deducted from your account. Or you can make a one-time gift there as well. Easy access. We have offering boxes in the back of the um, worship space, either in here or in the worship center each weekend. You drop that in the worship center on your way out each week, and you consistently and faithfully and generously support ministry locally here through the life of this church. In addition, second of all, not only ministry but missions. We want to see the gospel spread to the corners of the earth. So you're leveraging resources to give to folks who are, who are in India, like John Graham, planting churches across India. We met, the elders met with a, a, some missionaries from Moldova, a country in Eastern Europe that are reaching athletes and building them up and training them to share the gospel and sending them out into sports teams, professional sports teams that have a platform to share their faith with those that they would come in contact with. And we are in the process of considering a partnership with them to help support their work and their ministry to see the gospel taken to all the corners of the earth, missions, so ministry, missions, on top of your local church support. And then in addition to that, mercy ministry. To those who are poor and impoverished, to those who are hurting, to those who are broken. Whether you consider them to be deserving poor or undeserving poor, that you're leveraging resources towards them. Some of you say, well, there's the deserving poor, right? Those folks who maybe through, uh, you know, whatever circumstances they lost their job and they're looking for a new one. They're trying to find some place to work and have gainful employment. So I'm okay giving to them. But the undeserving poor, right, those folks who are just lazy and they don't want to do anything, I don't want to help address needs in their life. Let me ask you a question. What if Jesus had said the same thing about me? What if he had said the same thing about you? We were undeserving poor, and yet he leveraged the riches of heaven for our sakes. So ministry, missions, mercy. Maybe you'd support a family who's in the process of adopting. Maybe you'd help leverage resources to help cover medical bills for a family that's drowning in debt because of issues that were unforeseen. Whatever it is, that you would channel resources out and say, I'm going to draw a line right here and establish governors. 
Now, some of you already right now, there's defenses, right, that have been going up this whole time, and those walls are getting higher and higher and higher as you hear me talk about this because you've got some objections, right? Some of you feel like, I'm not rich, right? Jesus, what Jesus says here didn't apply to me. I'm not rich. You haven't seen my bank account, right? But the reality is most of us may need to reconsider that reality because in, in, in contrast to the world's wealth, Listen, if you make $50,000 of the family after taxes with two children in your home, you're in the top 8.5% of income across the globe. If you make $70,000 as a family after taxes with three children in your home, you're in the top 6.5% of income across the globe. If you make $90,000 as a family after taxes with four children in your home, you're on the top 5.5% of income across the globe. You say, I'm not rich. Maybe not by the covetous standards of our culture in America, but by the world standards, you're loaded. You're loaded. Another objection some of you might think, well, you only want us to give more so you can make more, right? I've been a part of those churches. The pastor's just bankrolling. I just want to let you know a little secret. I'm not in control of what I make here. That is in the hands of our elders and our finance team. I don't have any say or influence over that for a, for, for a reason. But I do have say and influence over the salaries of our staff. And I'll just be real honest with you. If we paid some of these folks hourly, we couldn't afford them. We couldn't keep the doors open because we pay them at such a minimal rate. Some other objections, you go, well, how, how do I know that what I give will be used the way that I want it to, right? I want to earmark it in a particular way. How do I know if I give this money, they're going to use it the way that I think it should be used? Reality is you don't. You don't. You never will. But the truth is what you've got to come to a place is do you trust the leaders that God has ordained in this church to use the resources of his people to accomplish his mission of sharing, shaping, and sending locally and globally? Do you trust that we will prayerfully consider how every dollar is channeled and where it goes? And if you can't trust that here, then you need to find a place that you can. And give faithfully, and give generously, and give sacrificially. Some of you say, I can't give at 10%, right? That's the standard. I can't, I, I'm not there, man. You don't know what my credit card debt looks like. You don't know what my bank account looks like every, every other week. How low I get, I can't give that 10% standard. Well, then start somewhere, right? 1% is more than 0%. Last time, I look, it took me two semesters to get through college algebra, but even I could figure out 1% is more than 0%. Right? And 3% is more than 1%. So start somewhere at some threshold and begin to give con consistently and faithfully. And then as income, earning potential rises, then your giving is able to rise as you pay off debt. So you may have debt that you need to pay down as quickly as possible so you can give more than you're able to give now. Listen, there's all kinds of objections that might rise in your heart. But the reality is, Jesus says, guard yourselves against greed. And unless I, and unless you, create governors in our lives, we will give ourselves over to the natural bent of our fallen condition every single 
day. Finally, what would it look like if New Testament Christianity replaced North Texas Christianity? What would that look like in our context? I think it would look like a richness toward God that would show him to be our treasure rather than our vendor. See, a vendor is someone who dispenses goods and services, and you come to him and you say, I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this. And then he writes a purchase order, purchase orders written, and he supplies those things for you. And this is how some of us come to God. The New Testament continually calls us to see God not only as our, as our vendor, but as our treasure. Look at what Jesus says at the end of the parable. He draws the whole point of the parable to a conclusion, and he says this. He says in verse 21, he says, Listen, this man's going to lose everything that he has. Everything that he stored up for himself to live a nice, comfortable life. He's going to lose everything that he has. And he says, so it will be with everyone who is not rich towards God. Listen, there is a richness towards God that is generated whenever we choose generosity over greed. That shows God to be what we value and treasure and love more than anything else in this world. And so when the world looks at us and go, goes, man, your income potential is here and you're still living in this house. Why don't you move up? Why don't you upgrade? Well, because then I wouldn't be able to support these missionaries. Or then I wouldn't be able to give at this capacity to my local church. Or then I wouldn't be able to help those families who are in need and trying to adopt. You know what that does? That gives evidence to the world around us that God is our treasure. As we're rich towards him. As we're rich towards him. What if New Testament Christianity replaced North Texas Christianity? I wrote down several things this week that it might look like in our culture. First, storage facilities might start closing. Right? What if they couldn't get their doors open anymore? Because instead of keeping and hoarding and accumulating, people started giving and selling giving stuff away. So what if the gospel cut off the roots of idolatry in North Texas Christianity, kind of like it did in Ephesus? And so when Paul shows up, he got all the, sh- the shopkeepers and vendors who had made their livings on the idolatry, the false gods of Ephesus in Acts, and he's saying, listen, let me out there to preach because they all want to kill Paul because Paul's cut off their business. What if? What if that, those roots of idolatry in North Texas Christianity got cut off and so all of a sudden storage facilities started closing? What if elective cosmetic surgeries not resulting from accident, disease, or birth defects experienced a sharp decline? Because it's not about how I look. It's not about outward appearance. It's about the heart. What if people started building smaller, more modest homes rather than larger, more luxurious homes, or they drove vehicles because of its usefulness rather than its status? What if we were content with a handful of firearms and fishing poles? Right? Hmm? I'll probably get a note about that this week. <laughs> what if there was minimal spending on clothing and shoes and we wore it until it wore out as opposed to thinking because it changed seasons and it's no longer in style. i got to go find something else. What if instead of keeping a reliable vehicle because we might need it one day, we gave that reliable vehicle to a family that's in need. There's a family right now that lives in Bonham, Texas, and the wife is in stage four breast cancer and she is dying. And this man is trying to piece together a basically end-of-life plan for his wife. And they don't have a reliable vehicle right now. What if someone, God, were to move in our hearts to generously say, you know what, I've got this vehicle that we don't drive or use. Let me give it away. What if, 
Instead of taking capital gains from your business back as a bonus, you invested them back in the business to create more jobs for people. Wage-earning jobs for people. Or you gave it away to a charity. What if, if those roots got undercut? Maybe it might look like a wartime lifestyle for us with rationing and pooling of resources to accomplish what God has called us to. It looked like an outpouring of money toward ministry, mission, and mercy here in our community and around the world that the world has never seen. If these roots got cut off of covetousness and greed, it might look like our church never being in need financially. We could support missionaries around the globe. We could help plant churches here and abroad. We could hire future staff as we needed. We could give benevolence ministry toward those in our church. We could help with compassion needs in our community. We could purchase ministry supplies to help us shape, share, and send everywhere God would want to take us. If you and I are going to become rich toward God like this, we're going to be rich toward God like this. It's going to require a change of heart and a change of perspective. You got to, your perspective's got to change because you've got to learn to trust. And you've got to, you got to learn to see. First, you've got to learn to trust. Listen to what Jesus says further on in the text in Luke chapter 12 and verse 22. He says, he told his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, and more about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn. Yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? See, some of you go, I've got to keep, I've got to keep, I've got to keep because I don't know what tomorrow holds. And there is wisdom in saving. The Proverbs tell us that. The ants gather for the winter and they collect. But there has to be a point where you say, I trust God with tomorrow more than I do what's in my bank account. And we look at the, the martins and the mums and we see them preaching to us every day. God feeds the birds and he clothes the flowers. God feeds the birds and he clothes the flowers. God feeds the birds and he clothes the flowers. And he loves you more than them. How much more so will he not provide for your needs? You got to listen to that sermon they're preaching every day. When you drive out of this place today and you see birds flying across the road, you got to remember God feeds them and he'll feed you. Give it away. You gotta learn to trust that. And the way you'll learn to trust that is by seeing that God did not withhold his son from you, but he gave him freely. Second Corinthians chapter 8, again in verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes. What does he say? Let's read it again. He says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. See, if you see that. That God didn't withhold that from you. Then it begins to cut off the roots of the love of money. And you begin to move out toward the world with generosity. And as you do, you get bound. We get bound together closer, to, more interwoven together as a community. One last quote, and the band's going to come lead us in a song. Kent Hughes said this. He said, we can enlarge our savings and our build, huge, build huge accounts to hold it all. We can plan our retirement so we have nothing to do but change positions in the sun. We can plan our menus for the twilight years so that nothing but the finest cuisine crosses our lips. We can live as if this is all of life. We can laugh our way to the grave only to discover that at the end we have nothing and in God's eyes, fools. 
or we can be rich toward God because we gave and gave and gave. Let's pray together. Father, we come today, and I thank you that you, by your incredible, awesome, amazing grace, have set us free from the power of sin so that we are now, as your people, able to choose generosity as opposed to living, consistently choosing our natural, fallen state of greed. Father, may you help us to see that you did not withhold from us your very son. And help us to see, as we look at the mums this fall, that you clothe them in all splendor. And even as the ducks migrate south and some of us will shoot them and eat them, may you remember that you fed them. How much more so will you feed us? Help us establish governors in our lives so that we don't get to the end of life and find ourselves to have been fools. We pray in Jesus' name.